Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Nice to see you all. It is a bit miserable outside, but it really is a warm welcome today. Let's remember that this is an opportunity for us to experience here together today something of the transcendent. And as God promises to be with us as we worship. So I really do hope you'll be blessed here this morning. So a re <clears throat> reading this morning, Exodus chapter 15 and beginning at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for, for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening, and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. 
Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. 
It was like white, it was like white, like coriander seed, and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see that the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Thank you, Peter. And uh, please do have those uh, words of Scripture uh, in front of you. And if you picked up the diary on the way in, there is a printed copy, which uh, um, a slightly different version to, to Peter's, but the same message. Um, and it's the one that I'll be following uh, as we work through these verses. Man alone is born crying lives complaining and dies disappointed. Let me let you digest that again. Man alone is born crying, lives complaining, and dies disappointed. That was Samuel Johnson's view of things, I don't know, 300 years ago. His, his words are supposed to be a criticism of how we live and use our lives, aren't they? And yet, in our society, they are almost a motto that is worn with pride. I mean, just think of the large numbers of people that are employed today over a variety of industries, and their entire job is to handle complaints. Now, I must admit, I'm one of those people who tends to be too cowardly to complain. I would rather just eat the food lukewarm or go home shortchanged than face that kind of a scene. But there is a time to complain, isn't there? I mean, if you're at the restaurant and the food's not cooked properly, you have the right to complain. You're the customer. You're the one paying for this experience. But imagine how you would feel if you were a guest at a dinner party and one of the other guests started to complain and taps the host on the shoulder, excuse me, this veg is, is overdone. Could you have got a more chuch bit of beef if you tried? Can you imagine? You'd be deeply embarrassed because you don't get to complain there. I mean, do it in the car on the way home, but you don't get to do it there. And I wonder if maybe we're supposed to feel a little bit of embarrassment as we listen in on the sort of conversations that have been taking place in the wilderness between Israel and Moses and God. There's a lot of inappropriate complaining. 
The word grumble or grumbling comes up nine times in these verses. It's a pretty important theme. God has has rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He's done it in a display of amazing power that's seen them walk out of Egypt with the wealth of Egypt in their arms. It's seen them walk through the Red Sea on dry land, and it's seen them leave their Egyptian oppressors dead, drowned in the sea behind them. God has delivered them from slavery to Pharaoh, and He's committed to make them His people. And here we are, three days into this new life, freed from slavery, and they start grumbling. Oh, you don't get to grumble here, surely. How could they? Well, I want to put it to you today that their grumbling is not the most surprising thing in this part of the Bible. It's not the most surprising thing. You know, when Moses went into Egypt and demanded of Pharaoh that he let the Israelites go, he was repeatedly met with the answer, no. And God responded to that hard-hearted, obstinate Pharaoh by sending blow after blow against the nation. It was a terrifying display of God's power. And so what about here? In the face of Israelite grumbling, God does not respond by saying, how dare you? He doesn't respond by saying, well, guys, if you don't like how things are going, clear off back to Egypt and see how you get on there. No, God responds with patience. God responds to these people with generosity. Because God wants Israel to learn through these experiences in the wilderness who He is. He has brought them out of Egypt. But remember, Egypt is the only home they have ever known. And there's a lot of Egypt needs to be dragged out of them yet. And God has committed to provide for His people. And so in these chapters, we see God the patient provider. In the verses Peter read for us, there's two episodes um, of grumbling. And if we'd run into chapter 17, you'll find a third episode of grumbling, which we'll come to in a couple of weeks. And these grumblings, they relate to the essentials of life, don't they? Water and food. When the Israelites cannot see where their next drink or their next meal is coming from, then they lose all trust in God and they complain. Those verses in chapter 15 show us that in three days, journeying in the desert, God had not yet led them to a source of water. What water they'd brought with them has run out, and people were starting to get cranky. Can you imagine the relief in this huge crowd that you couldn't number really when word starts to filter back through? Water up ahead, boys! And it starts filtering back and people are, oh. And almost in that moment, the the sense of, of thirst, it intensifies just knowing that it's within reach. And then they get there and the water is so bitter. It's like taking, taking a cup of water out of the sea and trying to be refreshed with it. Oh. 
The bitterness is really emphasized in these verses. The, uh, we're told that the place is called Mara, uh, and that word Mara means bitter. So you could translate it like this. When they came to bitter, they couldn't drink the water of bitter because it was bitter, therefore it was named bitter. That's how he writes the verse. Bitter, 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 bitter. That's how it was for them. And so, verse 24 of chapter 15 the people grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink? When God had led Israel into a dead end at the Red Sea, the Red Sea in front of them, the Egyptians behind them, they complained. But God used that to show them that He was in control. It was a teaching opportunity. That's why He led them there. He was going to show them that He will fight for them. And here, God has led them to Mara, the place of bitterness. He's led them to the bitter waters to show them that the Lord brings sweetness from bitterness. The Lord brings sweetness from bitterness. Moses, in verse 25, he does what the people should have done. He cries to the Lord, and the Lord points him to a log or to a tree, which he is to throw into the water, and it removes the bitterness and makes it sweet. Um, it's confusing. Um, so is, so is the, the manna that falls every morning. So is the quails that, that come ready to be caught at night. And while there's Lots of people who would say there's, they, they can provide natural explanations for some of these things. Undoubtedly, we're being presented, whether there's some natural means being used here or not, we're being presented with God's supernatural intervention, whether He's using natural means or not. God is intervening to provide, and here intervening to show that He brings sweetness from bitterness. And along with this action comes a promise from God, if they will, uh, verse 26, if they will diligently listen to His voice, do what is right in His eyes, keep all His statutes, then no harm will come to them. They would never need to fear the sort of pain that was inflicted on Egypt that will never fall on them. Keep listening to me, God says. He wants them to know that He is the Lord your healer. You see that in verse 26, the Lord, your healer. And not just in sweetening the waters of Mara, but God then leads them to this place called Elam, a place with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. It's a place of plenteous refreshing in the wilderness. That's the, the idea of the, the, the 12 springs, the 70 palms. Plenteous supply of refreshing. And here in just a few verses, we have a miniature, don't we, of, of what God has promised to do for the Israelites on the grand scale. They were in the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They cried out to God. He heard, He responded, He brought them out, and He promised to bring them to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. He promised to bring them to a place of rest where they would be His and He would be theirs. And here is an early reminder in the first months of the journey of where God is leading them. He is their healer. 
And they're going to need him to be their healer. Because it's clear already that simply being brought out of Egypt didn't mean they were entering into a carefree life. The reminder of the sweetness that's coming is a reminder, surely. Just bear with us one moment. The reminder of the sweetness that's coming is the reminder that there's bitterness along the way. God promising to be their healer is the reminder that there are painful wounds to be healed along the way. I mean, this is one example of many where Israel did not trust God. And there will come a point in the story of Israel on their way to the promised land, after God has given the law to them and revealed so much of who He is to them, that their grumbling will be met with a different response, not the one of patient provision. But here, Israel, newly released from slavery, so much to unlearn, so much to learn, God is showing them who He is, and He's leading them, and they are following God wherever He takes them, and He leads them into bitter waters. Mara wasn't a punishment. Mara was part of life with God. He led them to bitter waters. Think of the life of Jesus Christ, even. He, he is um, he's shown to us in the Gospels as the one who was faithful in everything, a, a marked contrast to Israel, who were so often unfaithful. Jesus is the faithful Israel. He's the one who was tempted in the wilderness, like Israel is, and yet was not found grumbling against God. He did not sin in any way, and yet for this perfect Son of God… He was led into the bitterest of waters, the waters of betrayal, of rejection, false accusation, humiliation, abandonment, murder even. And from this deepest bitterness that Jesus went through, God has brought forth the sweetest of sweetnesses a resurrected Savior who has opened up a fountain of life where anyone who will come to Him and drink of the water He provides will find eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And this pattern has remained the pattern for Jesus' followers ever since. In this room, I'm almost certainly speaking to mostly Christians, people who have trusted in Jesus and are looking to follow Him. And they will tell you that becoming a Christian is not necessarily something that made life easier for them. It often complicates a whole lot of things. It can complicate relationships, certainly mixes up your priorities. It complicates how we even understand ourselves. And the Christian is often led into bitter waters. But in the midst of it, when they cry out to God, when they find Jesus, well, they find Him to be a source of sweetness. And the amazing thing is that He is able to bring sweet fruit 
from even some of the most bitter circumstances. I was reminded recently of the story of George Matheson. He was a Scottish minister in the mid-19th century, a very clever man, graduated from university when he was just 19. And while he was studying, he met the love of his life and he got engaged. But George had an incurable eye condition that meant he would eventually go blind. And when he broke the news to his fiancée, she said, I don't want to be the wife of a blind man. And she left him. Those were bitter, bitter waters. Twenty years later, George was preparing for his sister's wedding. And in the midst of all of that, suddenly it all came back to him. He found himself deep, deep in those bitter waters again. And in those moments, he wrote a hymn of what it meant for him to look to the Lord in those bitter waters. Here's what he wrote. O love that wilt not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O joy that seeks me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. O cross that lifts up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endless be. His hymn was really saying, the Lord brings sweetness from bitterness. And some of you here have known that in all manner of ways. You've known God to be the Lord, your healer. And it's being granted to us as a reminder of what God is doing. He is taking us from the bitterness of our sin to the sweetness of His presence. And all of it is in Jesus Christ. And there's some here today, I'm sure, who still feel they're only tasting the bitter waters. Let the words of the Lord here be a spur to you to keep looking to Him, your healer, to trust Him, knowing that it might not be today, but on the other side of these bitter waters are the sweet waters that only Jesus can give. In chapter 16, we have the second episode, more intense episode of grumbling. They set out from Elam, but it's not long before the realities of being in the desert kick in. Suddenly you realize you're a long way from the nearest Tesco. And there's something understandable about their thinking, isn't there? There's so many of us, a whole nation's worth of us, and there's no way to feed us all. They become so disheartened that, you see in verse 3, they say, well, we, we would have been better off if we'd just died in Egypt rather than come out here to starve in the wilderness. 
And they have these, these nostalgic feelings about what it was to be in slavery in Egypt. Because at least they knew where their next meal was coming from. And if you even just scan down the verses 7, 8, 9, look at just how many times that word grumble or grumbling appears. They grumble. The Israelites are showing that they're slow to learn. They've, they've lost confidence in God again. And yet the patient provider shows them that he knows their needs and is committed to provide for them. Verse 4, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. God promises to be the delivery man. He's going to bring bread to them. And did you pick up the pattern of what God is going to do? He commits to provide food for them every day. When the morning dew has cleared, what you'll find is left is this. And these descriptions are unusual to us. Verse 14, you'll find fine, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. Verse 31, something like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it like wafers made with honey. It was unlike anything they'd seen before, so much so that they called it manna, which means fitzess. What is that? That's what it means. What is that? Each day the Israelites are to go out and they're to collect an omer of manna. An omer of manna is if you had a, a six-pint bottle of milk. You know the big one that Tesco doesn't do in the blue anymore? You've got to go to Morrison's. The six-pinter, that's an omer. Fill up one of those each morning. Collect that for that day only. Don't try and keep any over till the next day or it's going to rot. It's going to get infested with maggots or worms. The exception is on a Friday. Collect double on a Friday because Saturday is going to be your day of rest, your Sabbath. And God will keep Friday's manna to provide for you on the day of rest. God even gives them, in verse 13, this bumper meal on the first day of quail, small birds, to eat. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reminds the Israelites of this experience and why they've gone through this experience. Moses says, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is what God needs his people to learn. He's, he's taught them that God brings sweetness from bitterness, and he's teaching them here that man does not live by bread alone. Just think about this with me for a moment. God could have done this very differently, couldn't he? He could have arranged for the food to arrive in the Israelites' home. He could have arranged for a weekly delivery rather than every day, even a monthly delivery. Why not? Would have been much less hassle. But instead, God chose to send their food morning by morning, one day at a time so that they would trust him day by day for his provision. And you see that every rule that was given, some of the Israelites, it seems almost like their first instincts were to break it. 
So trying to keep some manna for the next day, maybe they're thinking, well, I want a long lie in the morning. I don't want to have to go out and collect the food. Maybe we'll just try and keep some over. Or trying to get some on the Sabbath and finding that there's nothing. But God, the patient provider, gives them manna to teach them to trust Him. Trust Him daily. He gives them the Sabbath day here, one day in seven so that they would rest from their work. And the only way that you're going to rest from your work is if you trust Him to provide you on that day. These are lessons in trusting God to be true to His words. And manna was given to teach us something too. Not only that we need God to provide our daily bread, but that we need the true bread which will feed body and soul. At least that was Jesus' understanding of what we should, uh, at least in part, take from this account in Exodus 16. In John chapter 6, you read of Jesus miraculously feeding 5,000 people in a place where there's no bread. Jesus is able to multiply these loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 and satisfy each one and have 12 baskets of leftovers at the end. And then he teaches them about this same theme. This is from John 6, verse 31. Jesus says, our fathers, um, I beg your pardon, his critics come and say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He goes on, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." You see, Jesus is saying that this episode with Israel in the wilderness and with the manna, it is a foretaste of, of the, the, the true living bread from heaven that we all need, and that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of it, that God is promising in Jesus to provide for all that we could ever need, to give us spiritual life and to sustain that life in Jesus forever. And the life of following Jesus is similarly one of daily trust. When Jesus teaches His followers how to pray, they're to pray to the Father, give us this day our daily bread. It's to seek from God daily what we need, to remind ourselves we are dependent upon Him from day to day to day. It's a daily walk with Jesus, where we daily need to feed upon Him, 
where we daily need to be drawn again to the gospel, to the good news, as we daily turn from the bitterness of sin and daily look to Jesus and trust in all of His goodness, all of His rightness, all of His sweetness. And He's given us these wonderful tools to do that. The Bible in our own language, prayer, each other. This is what these things are there for, that we might daily feed upon the Lord. The Israelites, throughout these verses, they suffer from memory loss. The only reason they grumbled as they did is not because of their thirst, not even because of their hunger, but it was because they had forgotten what God had done and how those great acts that He had done for them should and could give them confidence that God would keep all of His promises to them. God is patient with them to show them His glory. And I think, don't think we can miss that before we close here. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 16, the message that Moses has been given to, to say to the people, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. This is what they are to, to know through this experience. Further down in verse 12, then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. This is what they need to learn, that this is this is not just learning about our deity. This is learning about God and learning about what it means to know Him as their God, to say He's my God. And God graciously shows them something of His shining glory in verse 10. But He shows them His glory in giving them the food that they need morning by morning. God's glory is His attributes revealed. And here he's revealed to us as the patient provider. But friends, this is not an excuse for any of us to presume upon God's patience. It's not, a, it's not to be read here as, well, I guess this means grumbling against God is okay. You see, the difference between grumbling and bringing our, our burdens to God is that grumbling enjoys grumbling and settles for grumbling. The difference that you'll find in some of the Psalms is that people will come with, with the, the same sort of things. Lord, where are my needs going to be met here? But they come in a posture of trust, bringing them to God because we trust God with these burdens. He is the patient provider. Samuel Johnson said, man alone is born crying, lives complaining, and dies disappointed. I would maybe rewrite that for us today. The believer in Jesus Christ is born of God, lives trusting even when drinking bitter water, and dies knowing the faithfulness and sweetness of Jesus. And that's what this message of the gospel holds out to you today. It is not the promise of an easy life, but it's one that says life can be lived trusting even when drinking bitter water. 
knowing that the faithfulness and sweetness of Jesus lie ahead always. Then, um, and just as we go now, let's say the words of the grace to one another. Let this be our prayer for each other um, as we go into this new week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. <laughs>